the book of Ephesians, first three chapters, God's primary purpose is to glorify himself through the reconciliation of people to himself and people to each other. And this he does in Christ. The mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, fullness of time to unite all things in him. So uniting people to each other. That's how God formed the church. And through the church, he means to glorify himself in the spiritual world. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a key verse in Ephesians, truth around which the whole book is organized. God is all about reconciliation. God brings us to himself and brings us to one another. This is the church. For 2,000 years, Satan and his underlings have been attacking the church. Not because they hate us. They don't give, uh, don't give a rip about us. They hate God. And since we mean so much to God, they seek to get at God by getting to us. Like holding hostage the child of your worst enemy because you can't touch him. The evil ones don't care about us. It's God they hate, so they attack the church. And they do so by sowing discord, where God brings together, Satan tears things apart. Where God unites, Satan divides. Where God has joined together, Satan seeks to separate. And some here think that evil forces are attacking this church. And maybe... If so, maybe that's a good thing. It means we're becoming a threat. The kingdom of God is moving forward, so the kingdom of darkness is fighting back. Gates of hell are trying to prevail against the kingdom of God, but God's word says that they cannot. But in any event, when we feel that Satan is at work, it would be easy to feel that we are in danger. We may think that Satan and his army are too powerful for us to face. But we are not in danger. We are not in danger. Why? Three basic realities, the foundational truth, the love of God, the presence of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. First, the love of God. Do we understand the depth and height and length and breadth of the love of God for us expressed through Christ? In a sense, we can't. It surpasses knowledge, yet the Bible calls us to know it. We cannot comprehend it. We can't wrap our minds around it. But we can know it by experience. We can receive it. I don't know how much God loves me, but I know that he does. And this is true individually and corporately. God loves you and God loves us. God loves you personally and God loves his church. So let me ask you this. Would you let any loved one be destroyed if you could do something about it? someone broke into your house and started wailing on the one whom you love more than anything, 
Would you stand by and let it happen? Will God stand by and let his church be destroyed? Now, our kids may grow up and reject us. Those we love may love us in return. You may ignore God and reject him. But this is your own doing. It's not a deficit in God's love. It doesn't mean God loves us any less. It doesn't mean the enemy has grown stronger. It's not because of demonic attack. It's your choice. But if you look to God and cry, help, his love for us means that he will go to battle to protect his church. And I know that many of you are praying for God's help for the church these days. And you know what? We have it. What about you personally? Does God love you? It's easy for me to say that he does. It's easy to sing songs like, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Great. But where is the evidence? I can't see him. I wrote this part of my sermon on Thursday morning in my office, and it was cloudy. I couldn't see the sun. And sometimes you don't see God's love for you. But through my office, I could see the apartment across the street. I saw a pedestrian walk down the sidewalk, trees, the road, the front of my car, all were clearly visible to me. How could I see all this? Sunlight. I couldn't see the sun, but the sunlight was all around me. By the light of the sun, I could see everything. It takes more than clouds to block the sun. And maybe you look around and think, where is God? I can't find him. I don't know where he is. But all the while, his light surrounds you. He will not let you go. It is his love that enables you to navigate even through the most tough times. And life is sometimes hard, very hard. A large number of you are here this morning and are carrying significant burdens. What are yours? God loves you. And will not allow you to be destroyed. And he will not allow our church to be destroyed. Satan is powerful. He can do his work in our church, in your life. But his power is no match for the love of God. If we pay undue attention to the evil one, we quake in fear. But as we consider the love of God, we stand fearless. God loves you. God loves us, and Satan can have no success here. The church can face anything because of the love of God. And then there's the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ, the very expression of God's love. That's why we seek to fix our attention on Christ, because by so doing, we remind ourselves of the love of God, and ensure the power of the Holy Spirit. And more on that in a second. But this fixing our minds on Christ is something that we need to do. Hebrews 12, let us look 
to Jesus. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, not just on earth, but in the heavens, in the spiritual realm. He has authority over Satan, over demons, over everything. And Jesus has promised to never leave us, even to the end of the age, but we'll never know his presence if we don't fix our eyes on him. In the movie, The Lion King, there's a scene in which Simba, the lion cub, is faced with three advancing hyenas who are seeking to devour him. And Simba, defiant as always, tries to scare them with his roar. But when he roars, it's just a tiny childlike growl. And he tries again, and this time it's a thunderous roar that fills the air and sends the hyenas running in fear. Simba's dad, Mufasa, is standing behind the hyenas, and it's his roar that evoked overpowering fear into those who would attack his little cub. It was his presence, not Simba's, that won the battle. The hyenas were easily a match for a lion's cub but no match for the king of the bees. And our little tiny roars will not do much against the enemy, but the roar of the king ensures victory. How does he fight for us? What is his roar? Two things, his death and his intercession. Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross But his death was not merely to procure our forgiveness. His death was an act of battle. By his death, he guaranteed the defeat of the forces of evil. He made a public spectacle of them by the cross. In about 50 days, we will celebrate Christmas. We will peer into the manger and see the Christ child. And we will worship him who is our king... And we will see the manger in the shadow of the cross and remember Christ's sacrifice for us. But let us also remember that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. All his work. Every successful act of the evil one is turned to failure because Jesus Christ died. And he died for us, the church. And he rose again and lived today. And what is he doing? Hebrews chapter 7. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And think about it. Well, God the Father denied the Son when he asked for. Well, God denied Jesus what he asked for. What does Jesus ask for? I suspect a lot of things, blessing, strength, God's help in this or that situation. But we at least know one thing that Jesus has asked on our behalf. We know it because the word of God tells us in the scripture we read earlier. I ask for all who believe in me through their, the apostles' word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be 
that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If Satan, if the forces of evil seek to divide, to separate, to pull us apart, Christ himself has asked the Father that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. Satan sows discord. He will seek to rip, rip us apart. He will seek to have simple disagreement escalate to the point of ruinous conflict. But Jesus prayed for our oneness. Will God not answer the prayer of his own beloved son? Can the attacks of the evil one stand up under the death of Jesus? Can they be fierce enough to withstand the prayers of the Son of God? We don't need to fear. We don't need to roar. We need to let Jesus do the fighting. So the love of God for his church, the death and intercession of Jesus, can we fear the enemy? And if that weren't enough, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. God's power is at work within us. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, says Ephesians. What power is that? Romans 1 verse 4 says that it was by the Holy Spirit that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that power is at work within you, plural. The Holy Spirit's work is to testify to Jesus Christ. And as long as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be present and active. And that's why our vision statement on the front of the bulletin says that we are about the worship of Jesus and feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. They happen together. If we are focused on Jesus, we will be necessarily led by the Holy Spirit. If the honor of Jesus is our end zone, the Holy Spirit is a quarterback calling the plays that will get us there. It won't be Saskatchewan with two wins and 11 losses. Sorry, Riders fans. The Holy Spirit will get the job done every time. No, no team of evil forces can halt the advance of the church led by the Spirit of God. In truth, we may advance just one or two yards. It will seem like the forces against us are too powerful, are winning, but they're not. We will slam the ball down, touchdown, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And again, can the forces of evil stand against the power of God, the Holy Spirit? We are not, though, to stand on the sidelines and cheer on the quarterback, or worse, forget there's even a game. We are players. But nor do we play the game without the quarterback. As the Holy Spirit directs, lead us, we could stand against the evil one, and rather than harm the reputation of Jesus Christ, we can, we can effectively glorify him, despite their best efforts. And the Holy Spirit calls two different plays, the word of God and prayer. 
and I said this a couple of weeks ago, the disciplines of prayer and scripture are not just spiritual disciplines for personal spiritual training. Consider the difference between two people who spend extraordinary amount of time becoming proficient in the use of a rifle. One of them is an Olympic athlete hoping to be good enough with his weapon to win a gold medal, hoping that people around the world will say, what an excellent marksman. The other person is a soldier in an army who knows that if she falters with her weapon, she or someone in her unit may die in the enemy advance. And we often think of prayer and scripture like the first person, that it advances us to the program spiritually, that skill in these exercises is the goal in itself. Paul suggests that it's more like the second person, training for combat, that prayer and scripture are the church's essential weaponry in the spiritual battle. And in the cut and thrust of hand-to-hand combat with the smell of sweat and dust and hearing the hiss and snarl of our spiritual enemy, we had better know how to fight. If Satan and his forces are armed and dangerous, the church had better be more so. And you know what this means, of course. It means that if we ever feel like our unity is threatened or beginning to weaken, then we address it not through programming or events or functions, but by relying on the scripture and prayer, the revealed word of God to the church and our communion with God together in prayer in the name of Christ. So the scripture, the spirit inspired it, wrote it as it were. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit. And as a sword of the Spirit, it is appropriate that we wield it to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what a sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if you have any doubt about that, remember the effect of Peter's preaching on Pentecost. To a multitude, he proclaimed the word of God, concerning the divine sonship, the resurrection, the saving power of Jesus Christ. And what was the response of the crowd? They weren't persuaded or convinced or moved. They were cut to the heart. There is a power in the word of God unlike anything that you can imagine. And just as it has the cutting power to bring conviction and repentance to us, so it has the power to stab and inflict mortal blows against the enemy. It not only has divine authority, it has divine power to enforce its authority. 
And where does that power lie? It lies in the fact that God's word is truth. When Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, in the context of protect him from the evil one, Jesus prayed, sanctify them, set them apart, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what makes it such an effective weapon. For what is Satan's weapon? Deceit. He is a liar. Jesus said of him that he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Think of it. What, what lies at the heart of all disunity in the church? Deceit. All disunity, all discord, all estrangement, all disunity that has ever happened in any church of Jesus anywhere, all of it has come about because someone has believed something that was not true. No exceptions. At the heart of all discord in the church, either between individuals or corporately, lies a lie. And the lie that is believed is always some variation of the basic untruth that I have a right to think and act as I do or we do. Individually, it is when we believe the falsehood that I have the right to hold on to my anger. I have the right to feel offended. I have the right to have my way. I have the right to speak or think about someone unkindly. And when I share my concerns is not gossip, that it's okay not for me to forgive until I'm ready. That even though the Bible explicitly says that if someone has sinned against me, I need to go to that person. Or if I know someone thinks I have sinned against them, I need to go make it right. Nevertheless, I don't need to initiate conversation with that person. That it's okay to just avoid them or hold on to my own sense of being treated badly. I challenge you to think of in even one instance of disunity in any church that does not boil down to deceit. The devil and his forces scheme and attack the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, and his primary weapon is a lie, and the word of God is truth. Here's the question, though. How do we wield this sword? It's easy for me to say, the Bible is our weapon in the spiritual battle. That's abstract. How do we actually become proficient in the use of this sword? Now, you've got to be familiar, familiar with it, for starters. You've got to read it. We've got to read it. But we use the sword in battle by living it in the moment. A good swordsman is not someone who has memorized the book of Ephesians. A good swordsman is someone who chooses to forgive someone because she herself has been forgiven in Christ. You're not a good swordsman if you read the whole Bible. You're a good swordsman if you choose, uh, if your life is shaped by the knowledge that you are a child of God, saved by grace, and are therefore no better than anyone else. 
You're a good swordsman if you love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you speak the truth in love. That's how you live according to the truth. And that's how we, together, wield the sword of the Spirit. When Satan stabbed us with the knowledge that we've been wronged, we remember God's word that tells us that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Take the beam out of your own eye before trying to help your brother take the speck out of his. If a brother sins against you, don't go tell someone else about it, but go show him his fault. When Satan tells you you have a right to be angry, in your anger do not sin or don't let the sun go down on your anger. When you find yourself thinking that you're unable to forgive or just not ready to forgive, Remember that that is a lie, and God's word says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And I can do all things through him who gives me strength. As long as unforgiveness exists, unity does not. When you find yourself judging or thinking critically about someone, recall that the word of God says, judge not lest you be judged. And consider others better than yourselves. We wield the sword of the Spirit by living it. Consciously, specifically. And we can only do that as we are familiar with it. And we know what it says. And the counterpart to God's word is prayer. And these two have always been inseparably linked. Prayer and scripture go together like hydrogen and oxygen in water. The absence of prayer does not dull the scripture, but it dulls our senses to the scripture. And while it does not make the scripture less of a sword, it lessens our ability to wield the sword effectively. The apostle Peter makes this link between prayer and unity when he writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And later, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, you have an enemy. Be sober-minded, you can pray and love one another. We have got Listen, we have got to pray together. We have got to pray together. Every Tuesday nights, there's a prayer meeting here from 7 to early 30 to about 9, usually shorter. And a few of us are here together every week to pray. You need to be here. If you are Satan... You wanted to destroy the unity of the church. What we do, do. I know what I do. I would seek to undermine scripture and tell the church that we don't really need it. That preaching of the word is secondary importance. That books about the scripture are better than the scripture itself. Or that unless I feel like reading it, I better not. Or so the untruth that I can't really understand the scripture but need to be taught by some sort of expert. 
and try to distract from the practice of prayer, especially pray together. Too boring. Awkward. It's been said, if you can't make a Christian backslide, then keep him busy. Well, I make us so busy, even busy doing church things, too busy to be in the scripture, to be in prayer, and all along I so conflict to, through deceit. That's what I would do if I were Satan or one of his underlings. The truth is that in scripture and prayer, we know Jesus together and stand together against the evil one. It happens in no other way. And as the Holy Spirit leads us into Scripture and prayer, that Jesus is kept our conscious center, and only as Jesus is our conscious center of all that we do and do as a church, can we possibly hope to stand firm and repel the evil one's attacks. Who can stand in the face of the love of God? What enemy can hope to overcome the presence of Christ? Can evil ever outplay the power of the Holy Spirit? If we do feel like we're attacked by the forces of evil, and if we're not right now, we will be, be not afraid. If God is on our side, who can be against us? Don't focus on the evil ones and try to figure out how to effectively batter them. Any focus on evil, cultivate defeatism. Focus on God. On the front of your bulletin, you, you should look at it right now. We will find stated what the church is all about. In any church that worships Jesus and proclaims his gospel, any church that is directed in all things by the Holy Spirit, any church whose mission it is to grow in love for God and people, any church that is like that, Will the triune God allow her to be overcome by evil? And the answer is, no. God will bless her. If we don't focus on evil, but through scripture and prayer, we are focused on God, then there is no fear. There is faith. There is confidence. There is hope. There is victory, there is unity, and therefore, there is peace. And that's how it should be. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that by your grace, you would remind us of whose army we are in. And that if we look to you, we'll see that we have the victory and we will not be afraid. So turn our eyes to you and help us to 
turn to each other and recognize that we are one. And the evil ones, they will have no success here at all. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.